Sharon. Well, good morning, ZPC. We love Sharon Pierce. Sharon Pierce has been an elder for uh, almost three years. She has one more month, and we are going to miss her because as you can hear in that prayer, she is so encouraging. So no matter what, uh, she's always uh, giving good words. So I'm trying to uh, figure out if we can change our bylaws to let her stay on as the encourager because the rest of them are just very mean to me. So uh, I'm just kidding. They're all so great. Uh, well, uh, what a good Sunday it is. You know, this Sunday as I was uh, in the gathering space as worship had begun, one of our covenant children walked in and uh, she looked on the, on the monitor there um, and could see who was leading worship and, the, and saw Avery uh, Walgren, our high schooler, and she said, look, there's Avery. And I love just that sense of uh, a covenant child, five, six, seven, being able to see uh, one of their high schoolers, someone that they love up here leading in worship. And that is so important uh, in the life of our church and is really one of the gifts. So as we start this kind of Thanksgiving week, I just want to begin by just saying how grateful I am to be a part of a congregation uh, where we really know that we need to uh, in, um, intentionally cultivate uh, our young ones to see how they can not just be a part of the church, but actually lead the body in worship. Amen? All right. Well, we are in the Gospel of Luke still. Uh, we are going to take a break um, during Advent. So uh, during Advent, we will actually move over to the Old Testament for much of it, just because it's good to you know, realize that there are two different parts to the Bible. So we will begin to do that. But today, uh, we are looking at Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. So I invite you to hear these words. Here's what Luke writes. He, being Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other, for all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us Pray. God, we do pray that you would be with us with this pithy passage, Lord, and yet there are words for us to hear and to sink deeply into our hearts if we will but allow them to. And so I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen and amen. Well, Jesus is actually slowly but surely going to be wrapping up these parables. When he gets into Jerusalem, um, the parables are not nearly as abundant. 
And once again, just like last week, this is one of those very few times when Luke tells us, even before the parable is told, why exactly it is that Jesus is telling us this particular parable. Why? Because it is against those who trust in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. And immediately then, Jesus begins to talk about two men, a Pharisee and a tax collector. And if you've been with us much in Luke, or if you know much about the Gospels, what you know almost immediately is that, well, we can tell who's going to be the one who, uh, who looks at others with contempt and who trusts in themselves for righteousness. Of course, it's going to be the... The Pharisee, right? This is exactly what we know. We don't even have to hear the story. When you hear Pharisee and tax collector, you know the bad guy is a Pharisee. And what we should know, of course, is that 2,000 years ago, whenever Jesus is first telling this parable, they also would have known immediately who it was who was going to be the one who was contemptible to others and the one who thought themselves righteous. And they would have thought immediately the one who was the evil person was the tax collector, and clearly then, the good one was going to be the Pharisee. We have seen so much of these stories, these stories again and again, that we know that oftentimes it is the Pharisee who is the foil and not the tax collector. So in many ways, quite truthfully, it is really hard. In fact, I would say impossible for us to feel the punch of this parable like they would have 2,000 years ago. The cat's out of the bag. We already know that the Pharisee's the bad guy and that the tax collector is the good one. And of course, when you begin it looking through those lens, then it just kind of it changes how you hear what the Pharisee says, right? God, I thank you. That I'm not like all the other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even this tax collector, right? I mean, I, I could have said it in, no offense if you're from Britain, but in this British kind of pretentious accent. That made it sound like, you know, oh, he's so noble, so wonderful. And then, of course, he goes on, right? Because then he says, oh... I fast not once a week, but twice a week. And I tithe, right? Not like the average Presbyterian who tithes around 3%. This is true. But 10%. I'm triple as good as the Presbyterians, he would have said. I'm amazing, right? And so you get this sense, right? I mean, it's just like, it's, you almost, it's sickening. And then we go to the tax collector. So humble, so wonderful. He beats his breast, which is this sign, this physical manifestation of the fact that he knows that all of the sin and brokenness arises from his heart. So he beats his heart and he says this simple prayer, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, only one will go home justified. It is the tax collector, which again would have knocked the socks off of, or the sandals off of, whatever off of the people then. And the Pharisee is then thrown aside. And then he finishes by simply saying, the humble will be exalted. And those who are exalted will be humbled. It's pretty shut and open and shut case. It's pretty easy to know exactly what it is 
that's happening here. We know this, right? Tax collector, good. Pharisee, bad. In fact, we could just preach this and then I could close with a wonderful prayer. And the prayer, when we look at it like this, would simply say, dear God, thank you so much for this scripture passage and thank you that we are not like the Pharisee. Which of course is exactly where the Pharisee begins to trap you, or excuse me, the parable begins to trap you because as soon as you say, thank you that I am not like the Pharisee, then you have become the Pharisee. See, this is the sneakiness of this parable, especially when you allow it to kind of stay in these very stereotypical kind of understandings of who a Pharisee would be for us and who a tax collector is. And if we have any desires to begin to really understand the depth and the richness of this parable, then we have to be willing to dig a bit bit deeper. So once again, I find myself trying to defend the Pharisee. I kind of laughed this week when I read what Fred Craddock said. Fred Craddock said that the Pharisee is the faithful, dependable, tithing type who pay the salaries of ministers so that they can preach on the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. (laughs) And so perhaps by trying to defend the Pharisee, I'm just trying to keep my job. But I do believe that if we want to really understand why does the Pharisee act like this? Why does he talk like this? Why does he pray like this? Why does he act like this? then we have to be willing to dig just a bit deeper. Let's start by saying, what is it exactly that this parable, what is the most important thing about this parable? The most important thing, it seems to me, what is at the very foundation of this parable is a desire from both men to feel justified or to feel like they are righteous. Both of those words are used in this story, and both of them um, come from the exact same root words, so they're really very similar meanings. But unfortunately, righteousness and uh, justification are not really words that we use in our common parlance, so it can be a little bit confusing. What exactly does that mean? Well, Shirley Guthrie, the great theologian, he says this, that it simply means this. It means that God loves you just as you are. Now, That doesn't mean, as Guthrie said, that God doesn't see you well. God sees you incredibly clearly. God sees that you are not perfect. God sees those imperfections and the flaws. But justification is the big nevertheless. Nevertheless, God loves you. Nevertheless, whatever you might bring up, what about this about me or that about me? Nevertheless, God loves you. You. Tim Keller puts it in even more kind of common language. He says it means this, that, that, that God accepts you. That at the end of the day, what we are longing for is to know that we are approved, to know that we are accepted, to know that we are loved, to know that we matter. And as Keller says, that we matter, that we are accepted, that we are important to, to somebody outside of ourselves. At the root of it, whether we want to admit it or not, or whether we ever think about it or not, ultimately all of us want to know from a source outside of ourselves that we are loved, that we are important, that we matter, that we are accepted. 
Now, we believe as followers of Jesus that the way in which this happens, what's most important is that that comes from God. This is why Augustine has his favorite uh, or most famous quote that says, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. Because without that as a foundation, what you find is you find a people full of anxiety. You find a people who are driven. They're driven to be successful. They're, they're driven to have stuff. They're driven to be noticed. They're driven, they're driven, they're driven. Why? Because they are desperate to know that they are accepted, that they are approved, that they are loved, that they are matter. And so, so they continue to drive in this way. And, and, and when you don't have that place in God, then the reality is you just keep driving. We'll talk about that in a moment, but this anxiety that just keeps going. If you don't get it from this person, you need to get it from that person. And there's always just this constant fear. But even for those of us who follow Jesus, who know intellectually, okay, I know intellectually I am loved by God. I am, I am accepted by God. The truth is that it's really hard because it's not tangible. So what you find is that we begin to look for tangible ways to prove this, that we are loved even by God. This is where the Protestant work ethic came from. Uh, Max Weber, Weber's uh, kind of thought on this, and, 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 and you know this, I'm not gonna go into great detail, but basically amidst this ambiguity and uncertainty, right? They used to be able to get this in the uh, Roman Catholic Church. This is back in the day with the Roman Catholic Church. Things have changed there, so I'm not trying to disparage them. But, but the sense of, you know, the priest could tell you this. That was physical, tangible. But then, you know, we say, oh, no, it's just grace. You don't even need a priest. And that sounds great. But then we still want something tangible to know for sure. So the Protestant work ethic would say, ah, do you know how you know God blesses people whom he loves with, you know, with things, that, with success. And so what do you do? You begin to work because whenever you work hard and you begin to have stuff, then you'd be like, oh, whew, God loves me. I have worth. And so it kind of creates this Protestant work ethic. And so we oftentimes are driven. We are driven for success. We are driven to be noticed. We're driven to have things. And we are driven to play games. I've been reading this really fascinating book called Scarcity Brain uh, by a guy named Michael Easter. I'm not going to go all into the book, but I want to bring up one particular chapter because in this chapter, he begins to talk about gamification or gamifying things. Now, when I say that, some of you are like, okay, yeah, I know exactly what that means. Others of you are like, wait, they made a verb out of game. What is happening here? This is weird. So let me just explain. Uh, gamifying, much of it comes from a TED Talk back in 2010 by uh, someone named, um, um, what is it? Her last name is McGonagall. I can't, Mrs. M Miss McGonagall, Jane McGonagall. And she said, you know what? If you really want people to change their behavior, if you really want them to do better, then we need to begin to gamify everything in our lives. We need to make everything a game because in a world of kind of uncertainty where we don't know things or right or wrong or how we're doing, when you begin to put points to things, when you begin to gamify things, then you begin to have more certainty and, and you can repeat it. And so then people will begin to be driven to, to change. And so in the last 10, 15 years, we begin to see this in lots of places and exercising and learning and weight loss and shopping and advertising and healthcare. They do it by putting points to things, by giving you a leadership 
bored, by giving you badges, by performance graphs, by constant notification. So if you do Peloton, right, which is a stationary bike thing that you can do, right, you have a leaderboard so that you can see how am I doing on the leaderboard. If you uh, go to Starbucks, right, uh, when you get Starbucks, every time you, what do you get after Starbucks? What can you earn? You get points, but they're stars. That's exactly right. Until you can begin to get awards, right? And so you begin to think about this. Uh, Duolingo, which is the learning app, you know, you get badges, you know, if you've gone five days in a row, good job. Here's a badge for you, you know, or, or if you've worked up a level, right? For me, um, it's this Garmin watch that I have. Um, um, you may not know this by looking at me, but I'm actually a very decorated athlete, So uh, I just want to share, I don't want to brag too much, guys, but I, just, I did take a few screenshots. Uh, you can see here, look at this, stepping up 40,000 steps, uh -huh. a sleep streak, uh-huh, yep, seven-day goal getter, early riser. Uh, here's this last one, my favorite one. I don't even know how they got this way in. I have no idea, but I got a badge apparently just for stepping up on a scale. It's pretty impressive, wouldn't you say? So I get all of these badges, right? And it makes me feel good. It makes me feel like I've done something. It makes me feel like I'm improving. It's this remarkable thing, right? Where everything just kind of gets better and better. And what's fascinating is over the last 10 or 12 years, the gamification of things have gone from zero amount of money being poured into it to $2 billion. And what businesses discovered is that by 30% increase, people began to visit their site more, they began to revisit their site, and people began to tell others about their business. We love the sense of gamification. It really does work. We love to track, we love to see how we're doing in comparison to others. The book says this, in a life full of uncertainty and stress, scoring and games gives us anxiety relieving certainty about whether we have won or lost, whether we are right or wrong, whether we did poorly or whether we did well. In other words, there is something inside of all of us that wants to be affirmed by something outside of us that we are good, that we have done well. I can sit back on my phone, scroll through my badges, and know that I must be some kind of elite athlete because I stepped up on a scale. Now, scarcity brain does go on to say this, which is that as much as it might improve us at times, the truth is there is also real danger when we begin to do this. Because it can begin to distort our goals. It can begin to distort why we are doing the things that we are doing. So let's look at one of the greatest gamifications I would suggest. Let's look at Facebook. Now, how was Facebook gamified? Likes. You know, that thumb wasn't always there. And they could have just made the thumb. You could just like it. But they didn't just make the thumb, right? What else did they do? They counted it so that you can know how many likes you receive. Who loves to see how many likes they get? Yeah, thank you, two honest people. 
So I went on the pilgrimage, you know, as I've said, you know, several weeks ago. And I said, I'm going to take five days. And, I, you know, during those five days, I'll post. I never post. I hate posting. And so I said, okay, I'm going to do this. And so I did. And so, uh, you know, Shaughnessy was there. We were, you know, we, you know, I'd write something. We'd post it, you know, what, day one, day two, day three. It was all fine. But then we did begin to notice, she and I, how many people were liking us. The first day was amazing. So many people liked it. It was great. We're like, wow, this is pretty good. The second day, it took a nosedive. <laughs> and we're like, oh, my goodness. The third day, it ticked up some more. And guess what happened as I was walking on the fourth day? I began to say to myself, I wonder why that second day didn't get nearly as many. I bet people like the picture of Shaughnessy pondering her pilgrimage. They would really like that, I bet, because they seem to like this other one. And then like, well, you know what? I, I felt like I didn't say as many deep things that second day. I wonder, maybe I should start thinking about this. And it is striking how it doesn't take very long before, as you are literally on the pilgrimage trying to be present, you are beginning to wonder. I wonder how many likes. I wonder if people will like this. Oh, I bet you this would be a great shot. And it begins to distort. And right there, you no longer are present in the moment. And you begin to forget almost, if you're not careful, why you're even there in the first place. And because, of course, you know what happened after that. Then we began to ask questions, as Shaughnessy did. You know, how many people? How many likes did mom get on her post today? Oh, mom was getting crushed. Right? We were crushing her and it felt pretty good, you know? And so we're like, all right, well, we got to keep, keep this up. And all of a sudden, things began to be distorted. So that one professor of gamification, I love how he says this. I'm going to read this to us. I want, I want you to hear this. Here's what he says. He says this. When we stamp a simplified scoring system on an activity, we begin to fixate on the scoring system and chase points rather than experience the activity's original goals. Those metrics take over our motivations. We get satisfaction in exchange for shifting our goals along engineered lines, but risk losing sight of the real importance of the activity. I love this. It bends towards something much more impoverished. So let me just summarize this. I want to make sure I get this right. We have a group of humans who live in a world of uncertainty and ambiguity. A people who long to know that we are stacking up, that we are good, that we matter. So we find a way to measure these things, sometimes accurately, sometimes inaccurately, as we begin to place an incredibly high emphasis on those things, perhaps even taking pride in how well we are doing in them. But in the process of all this, we begin to grow impoverished because we have missed the point in our attempt to feel like we are okay like we measure up, like we are loved. There are two things that came out of this chapter for me as I began to read it and think about it in light of our passage today. Thing number one, businesses are really quite good at knowing what our own cravings are. They're good at that. They're good at tapping into that. That's not a value statement. I'm just, I'm amazed at how good they are at that. But point number two is this. That religious folks 
have been gamifying our faith for way longer than any TED talk. Because this is exactly what this Pharisee is doing. You see, once you get past kind of this, you know, this arrogance and we just kind of say, oh, if we, if we don't just slough it off, if we really dig in, what do you begin to see? What do you begin to hear him saying? What does he say? He says, I fast twice a week. You know what he just earned? A badge, right? <laughs> he gets a fasting badge. Thank you to Brendan for helping me out with this. He gets a fasting badge. Or what about, you know, hey, you know what I do? I tithe. That's pretty good. You know what I get? I get a tithing badge. Look at this. Tithing badge, right? He feels good. I get these badges. Look at what I've been doing, God. Do you see this? And then, of course, what does he do? He says, all right, well, not only do I do that, but if you look at the leaderboard, I mean, look, here I am right here, at least for those around me. You got a tax collector, number five, then the adulterer, rogue, thief. But number one, do you see what you have? Me. There I am, right? He literally counts down the leaderboard and he says, this is me. I am on top of the leaderboard. What the Pharisee wants ultimately is to know that he is loved. He wants to be noticed. He wants others to know that he matters. He's desperate to get the approval of God. And so this is what he does. He brings these badges. He brings this leaderboard, which he thinks is going to be able to rest his soul. But as we know, it does not because there are always more badges to try to earn. So as soon as you've earned a badge, okay, I've got this. Oh, geez, now I got to go do that. And you chase after you got to do that. And you feel good for a moment, but then there's another badge. And you say, okay, I've got to go get that badge because now maybe you have to fast three times a week. And what is most crippling, what most impoverishes us is that then when you look at the leaderboard, you always know that those others are coming after you. How, the only way that we can deal with one another in this way then is to look at them as competitors. They are never brothers or sisters. They are always competitors trying to move up that leaderboard. And so you keep working and you keep working and you keep trying to make sure that you are just a little bit better. Maybe it's a little bit more successful. You give a little bit more. You come a few more Sundays. Whatever it may be, there's just this constant need until all of a sudden you've missed the, the goal as, these, as scarcity brain said, the goal becomes complete changed. You forget the goal of tithing is never to try to earn any kind of love or respect. It is to give out of this great grace with which you have received. The reason we fast is, is really multivalent, but, but perhaps it's just simply struggling. Perhaps it's out of a need for trying to remember how much you love God. Perhaps it's after, it can be after lots of things, but it is never so that you will be noticed or so that you can feel the love of God. So the Pharisee does everything he can to kind of show, to bring all that he can to say, God, I matter. Look at, look at this. Look at these badges. Look at the leaderboard. And if you think, ah, Jerry, you're pushing this gamification. Let me go back to theologian Shirley Guthrie. And here's what he says. He says this, salvation is not a prize to be won. Right? Do you hear that gamifying verbiage? It is not a prize to be won by our good works. It is a gift to be accepted by faith. And when we begin to believe that being loved or mattering to God is a prize to be won, then we have lost 
because we will continue to live in the state of anxiety and restlessness, which then takes us to the tax collector. The tax collector has no smartphone, no apps, no Garmin, no Apple Watch. What does he have? He has himself. And he has very little to say, which is why he says very little. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It doesn't sound like much because it's not. It's simply the sign of God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And we can all say, you know, in good Christian verbiage, well, that's all it takes. That's the way. But the truth, of course, is, is that most of us at least struggle with that being all it is. Most of us want to bring something with us. We want to bring this badge. We want to bring this leaderboard. We want to bring something. Uh, several talked about the fact, I love this, that in Genesis, you know, when you have Adam and Eve and they're there, when they, when they, not, when they are certain of God's love, right, then they're naked. They're vulnerable, and it doesn't bother them. They love this. But as soon as sin and brokenness enters in, and they begin to wonder, what do they begin to do? This is the very first badge. It's a fig leaf. They're trying to say, okay, come on, we got to get this. Okay, we got to get more stuff, right? We got to get more stuff so that God doesn't actually see me as I really am. God sees all these other things. But the tax collector... And all of his remarkable naked vulnerability simply says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The image reminded me once again of uh, what I talked about a few months ago with the fly fishing. When we had this professional fly fisherman who came and, and visited our group and fished with us during the day. And he was really good. And as I said then, what was striking about him, perhaps most striking, was that as he got there, he really just had his rod and maybe a couple of different, you know, lures, if you will, flies. But the rest of us, right, as we kind of clambered up, right, to the river, we had all of our gadgets, our gizmos, our gear, right? We have a picture of kind of what, what we kind of look like here, right? We had all this stuff, Right? And we were, I mean, you could hear us, and we were, our hope was, oh, we think the fish and everyone else are going to be really impressed by us. Right? And we come, and we come with all of this stuff. We are carrying the weight of the world, right? But we think, oh, this is going to be amazing. Whereas the professional, right, who's just kind of gobsmacked at how much stuff we has, as he's fishing, you should see him, right? He's just so light. He's just like, Right, he's just, I mean, it's amazing, right? And we're like this, we have all this stuff and we're like, and we're doing it. And if we don't get something in two or three, you know, kind of, kind of uh, uh, tosses, whatever, casts are, sorry, I'm not a fly fisherman. Uh, 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 you know, if you don't get it, right? They're like, okay, oh geez, we gotta change. We gotta change the fly, we gotta change the fly. And we're doing this, right? And he's just, no, he's just light and easy. It's like he's experienced the joy of the light and easy grace of just saying, I'm bringing myself. And the rest of us are carrying all of this stuff and the hope hopes that it will be impressive. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. In the Orthodox Church, they have this ancient prayer. It's called the Jesus Prayer. Much of it is actually based on this tax collector's prayer. It just says, Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me. And they will oftentimes say this prayer again and again and again. And the hopes of saying this, you know, again, to go back to the tax collectors, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
is that it will eventually begin to move from the head, where it is for most of us, down to the heart. So that it, it can begin to actually challenge those badges that we are trying to acquire. The leaderboard that we're trying to get on top of. It says a lot, this short little prayer. God, of course, is just this reminder of the fact that we are not God. This reminder that we are desperate for God. That we are human. And then the mercy, of course. Have mercy on me. Is this outspoken comment that, that, that we are broken, that we have sin, that we are flawed, and it is a great relief when you can simply, as fearful as it may be, just admit that without having to try to distract God with all of these other things. But it also, as someone has said, is this great reminder that almost all of us have wounds that are not of our own making. And this call for mercy is a call against those wounds. Maybe it's a parent for whom you always felt like the love was more conditional. Maybe it's the words of a spouse or the word that you heard as a child that, that was this dismissive, this critical word that just keeps circulating in your ears. You can't get rid of it. Maybe it's even just that self-talk of looking in the mirror and keeping thinking, I am not enough. See, this simple prayer of the tax collector is a way for us to combat this need that we have to try to impress God. Because when we keep doing these things, when we bring badges, it only leaves us in bondage. And when we keep thinking we need to be the leader of the board, we will rarely ever feel like we are actually led or that we are actually Now, if you're anything like me, this week, what has, what's been going on in my head is this. I, I know, yes, but don't we still need to? And what about this? And Yeah, but still, I know this is a good lie. I know it's a simple prayer, but probably we still need to. And I understand all of those things. But if that's who you are and where you are today, let me invite you to just breathe. To allow this simple prayer, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, to wash over you. Unchain yourself from the badges that you think will distract God. From the offerings that you hope will make you worthy. And go home knowing that because of God's grace and love, you have been called, been called son and daughter. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. May it be so. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we want to add a lot of things to these simple prayers. We are, many of us, myself included, good Pharisees. Collecting badges gives us comfort and security, makes us feel safe. And yet you call us 
to be vulnerable, to have nothing between you and us. And so we bring this morning, we bring ourselves. The parts that we love, the parts that we wrestle with. We bring our pain, Lord, sometimes endured by others. And we simply say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. May those words work their way from our heads deep into our hearts. It's in your name we pray. Amen and amen.